sermon series in Revelation has occasioned the question, how does God want us to worship him in song? And there the question is properly framed, as we have seen, because the question is not what do we like, what do we find to be pleasing, or even um, meaningful or religious, but our question is what does God desire, what is pleasing in his sight. You remember that with respect to his worship, he has limited it to his own revealed will. If it is not commanded, then it is forbidden to us. What has God commanded with respect to song? To answer that question is difficult because it changes from age to age. In your outline, you see that we have divided those ages into four to consider what did God command his church in those various ages. And our goals in this sermon series have been twofold. One, what does God require of us in song with respect to worship? But we've also been considering the lawful use of music outside of worship. First of all, something of a negative conclusion concerning that first age of the world The first 2,500 years of the world's history, almost half, there is no evidence that the people of God used song in worship at all. And we'll keep coming back to that. We'll come back to that again next week because there is uh, further evidence to strengthen our conclusion presented to us in the days of Samuel. Samuel, you say? Yes, indeed, Samuel. We have been looking at the second age, a much shorter period of time, 500 years, 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C., from Moses to David. Over the last handful of Lord's Days, we've been looking at the songs of Moses and the Mosaic Age. We were able to draw from this two points. With respect to worship song, the second commandment applies. In other words, we are to uh, do only what God commands, and we're not free to alter it by addition or by subtraction. And then we notice with respect to that Mosaic age that God never commanded any sort of service of song for use in his tabernacle. The tabernacle and its worship is delivered in great detail from Exodus to Numbers and yet there was never any provision for an abiding service of song. Occasional songs are given by uh, prophets uh, to be used on special occasions and they had warrant to do so by that special inspiration. In other words, on those occasions God commanded a song through his prophets by special revelation. But it doesn't appear that those songs were used afterwards simply because there was no provision for doing so, no vehicle for doing so in the tabernacle. Outside of worship, um, of course, all song is to be governed by the Ten Commandments. Religious song outside of worship is to be governed by the Third Commandment. Uh, 
We are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We are not to use God nor divine things in a light and frivolous manner. So if God's name is going to be taken up, let the matter be weighty, solemn, and serious. And at least one way of doing this would be by way of instruction. So catechetical songs are very useful for the instruction in religious truth, and that is also in keeping with the third commandment. Whether or not there might be any other uses of religious song outside of worship, I'm not sure, but uh, we know at least that one from Deuteronomy chapter 32. This morning, I wanted to look at just two texts from the time of the judges. We have now put uh, Moses to rest. He has gone to sleep in Christ Jesus. Israel has invaded Palestine and begun the settlement of the land. And in the book of Judges, we get a few other indications of song and its use. Next week, to encourage your hearts, we are finally going to um, reach what I call the watershed events in the history of the service of song. It's going to start in a strange place. It's going to start with Samuel and his wandering band of prophets, which appears to be a model used by David to set up his Levitical school for the composition of songs, as well as for training in musical instruments. And for the first time, the people of God will have a regular abiding service of song taking place day by day in private, in their families, and in public. But I want you to to notice that 3,000 years of world history would pass by before that would happen. It will be about 1,000 B.C., about 3,000 years ago, that the church for the first time was given a regular service of song. But before we get there, we have a few other texts to take up that I, I hope will be interesting. First, in the year 1406 or thereabouts, we have the case of the mysterious dancing girls of Shiloh in Judges chapter 21. For those of you that know me well, you will know I have always had a special fascination with the book of Judges. So I must uh, discipline myself to limit my comments here. The last part of the book is actually with respect to chronology, the first part of the book. This is the generation that immediately followed upon the heels of Joshua. This would be the children of Joshua's generation. And what we learn in those final chapters is that Within one generation, there was almost a complete religious apostasy and gross moral declension. We find in chapters 17 and 18 that immediately they go to the service of idols, erecting an an idol temple in Dan, which uh, will abide for centuries. The problem of idolatry in Dan would continue from this age, roughly the year 1400, to the Assyrian captivity. 700s. So uh, an abiding 
problem here for the better part of a millennium. But in addition to that, in the final narrative from chapters 19 to 21, we find that the sins of Sodom are committed in Israel, in Gibeah of Benjamin. We are told of a certain Levite who takes a concubine in Gibeah, Benjamin, as they are traveling home. That concubine is raped and murdered. Uh, and the story is told with uh, purposeful allusions to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that led to their uh, destructions. The Levite, in a very strange uh, Procedure cuts his concubine up into pieces and sends her out to the tribes, calling upon the tribes to do justice on his behalf. And the tribes respond. They come up against Gibeah of Benjamin prepared for war. They demand that the criminals be delivered for public justice. And it's not just Gibeah, but all of the tribe of Benjamin refuses. This leads to a series of battles. We won't uh, pause to consider those battles. But the net result is that it leads to the near extinction of the tribe of Benjamin. All that is left is 600 men. No women, no children. But now there's an additional problem. Only 600 Men have survived, and yet before the battles, the other tribes had sworn not to give their daughters in marriage to Benjamites. They had become so um, morally perverse. Now you've got a problem. You've got 600 men, no women, and so no way for this tribe to continue. And they begin to be troubled. A tribe, one of the ancient tribes, is about to die out in Israel. Now you should know that the Lord does not approve of the, the procedure here. This whole narrative ends with the very pregnant words, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is a great illustration of this all the way around. We learn that um, Israel had made another vow that if any town or country had refused to come up with them to fight against the Benjamites, that that city would be destroyed. They learned that a city had refused to come up, Jabesh Gilead. So they go and rage war against Jabesh Gilead, uh, destroying it and all of its people, except for the young virgin girls, numbering 400, whom they take to give to the Benjamites. But you still got the problem of the leftover 200. Turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 21, beginning in verse 19. Judges 21, verse 19. And they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly in a place which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goeth up from Bethel to Shechem and on the south of Labona. Therefore, 
They commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie and wait in the vineyards, and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in dances, then come ye out of the vineyards, and catch you every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. Verse 23. And the children of Benjamin did so, and took them wives according to their number of them that danced, whom they caught. The question here that arises is, was there a service of song connected to the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh at this time, that precipitated this dancing? We will come back to that in just a moment. This is the whole reason why I bring up the text. There was a feast of the Lord in Shiloh, it is said here. That was the place that the tabernacle was pitched at the time. God had not yet designated Jerusalem as the final resting place of the ark. The feasts of the Lord would have been celebrated there. We're not told which feast this was. And remember, there were three great feasts in uh, roughly March. You would have had... uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the first great feast. Fifty days later, you would have had the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, as it is called. And then in the seventh month, roughly our September, you would have had the Feast of Tabernacles. This was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. There are two things that would lead an interpreter in that direction. First of all, the Feast of Tabernacles... Most of the times that it is mentioned in in the scripture is frequently attached to great joy. Uh, The several notices that you find in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there will be frequent mention of joy. And for those of you that remember the preaching of Ezra and the Levites in the book of Nehemiah, the people begin to mourn and they tell them not to because this is the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles and it's not fitting for them to be mourning at this time of such great joy and uh, celebration. Another thing, um, this can seem like a very minor matter, but they're told to lie and wait in the vineyards. Uh, The uh, Feast of Tabernacles in September was right on the heels of the harvest of olives and grapes. But during that season of year, the uh, vines are still full of leaves, which would make a a convenient hiding place for the Benjamites lying in in wait. This would not be true in uh, in the spring. So it appears that this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The place we find in verse 19, a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly, in a place which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goeth up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south of Labona. If you look on your map, there's a lot of controversy about the precise location of Labona. But we are told that, uh, we're told that the Feast of the Lord is in Shiloh, but then we're given a place that is not quite Shiloh. Interpreters will look at the description of the place and they'll say, this is to try to explain a clear thing by an unclear thing. Shiloh is a famous city, Its place was uh, well-known, and yet it's described by places less well-known at the time. And Labona's so little-known that it's uh, a matter of great debate where it was. 
If you look, you will be able to see that um, Shiloh is just to the east. If you draw a line from Bethel in the south to Shechem in the north, you will pass by Shiloh. Shiloh will be uh, on the east side. But it appears that the place that's given here is near Shiloh, but not exactly Shiloh. It appears that the particular place of the women's dancing is being designated so that the Benjamites would know exactly where to go. So, uh, and we'll further confirm this, but this is the place that the women would be dancing, not so much the place where the religious services connected to the feast would be celebrated. Just one other note for those of you that are interested in such questions. Our earlier problem remains. Were they dancing in the dances or piping with pipes? Uh, remains unclear at this, at this point. But you get the idea. It's obviously symbolic of their joy. They are celebrating this, uh, this great time. Some conclusions that we can draw from this, from this text. This dancing or piping, whatever it was, was not part of the tabernacle worship. We have covered some of this already. First of all, it was not commanded. If they did try to attach it to the tabernacle, they would not have been warranted in doing so. As we said, there's no evidence that a musical service was ever instituted for the tabernacle, nor attached to it. But also we have this notice that it is not taking place with the tabernacle. And we can say this with uh, certainty beyond the notice of the place, which doesn't appear to quite be in uh, Shiloh. The women in their dancing appear to be alone. In other words, they appear not to be with men that could protect them. They go to a secluded place. But at the tabernacle, there would have been men and women and plenty of people where they could not have been kidnapped in this manner. So wherever they went for their dancing, it wasn't at the tabernacle, the public place, but rather a uh, secluded place. And notice that they are said to go out from Shiloh to, uh, uh, if the daughters of Shiloh come out, go out to dance and dances. So they go out from uh, from Shiloh to a secluded place. So what might we say about this? This uh, piping or dancing appears rather to be um, representative of their great joy in the season. And for good reasons. The harvest is in. Now all of it. Uh, at the at Passover in March, you had the barley harvest. At Pentecost, the wheat harvest. And now all the rest of the fruits of the earth are brought in. The harvest is complete. And of course there's particular joy in the harvest of the grapes and the making of wine for obvious reasons. But also it is the time of the feast of the Lord, which would be an occasion for celebration and rejoicing as well. We are told in the Pentateuch, that the people of God were commanded to set aside a tithe for their journeys up to the temple or tabernacle, be that as it may, for these times of celebration. So they feasted indeed and rejoiced their hearts. And we shouldn't necessarily think this strange, although the feast of 
uh, booths was a week long. It was only the first day and the last day that were considered high Sabbath days where you would abstain from menial work and, and from this kind of uh, rejoicing and rather give yourself completely to the Lord very much the way we do on our weekly Sabbath. The days in between were considered Sabbaths, but if you will, they were considered low Sabbaths where some measure of work and some uh, measure of this kind of um, temporal mirth would be uh, allowable and fitting. This raises another question. Is their rejoicing wholesome or unwholesome? And here we come to a bit of application. I won't stay long on it, but I do think it's important. We should not assume that their rejoicing is unwholesome or they're going out for these dances is a bad thing. Remember what we learned from Genesis chapter 37, that Jacob seems to have uh, enjoyed such things. He seems to have affirmed their value, this kind of rejoicing, this kind of festivities. And so it seems that music and even dance appears to be lawful for celebration in and of itself, provided it not violate any of the other commandments like uh, modesty or decency. Some interpreters have, have noted uh, that it's a fact important that when the daughters go out to dance, they do it without the company of men. So it, it does appear that uh, modesty and chastity were well protected in this, in this arrangement. So we ought not to look at this as a bad thing or uh, necessarily uh, unwholesome. It just appears to be part of their lawful uh, rejoicing as far as we can tell at least in and of itself, provided it wasn't abused by them. This brings us to our second text in the book of Judges. If you'll turn back with me to uh, Judges chapters 4 and 5. And I don't know, with that last text, if you're like me, but I... I've wanted to study that in more depth for some number of years to come to some certain notions about what is going on here. This is very uh, peculiar. Now it no longer seems so peculiar to me and I hope it doesn't seem peculiar to you any longer either. With Deborah, we are going almost a full century into the future. Now we are almost a full century and a half away from Moses. The book of Judges has a, has a strange arrangement. It moves chronologically from chapter 1 to chapter 16. Samson is really the end of the chronology in the book. And then in chapter 17 through 21, it returns to the beginning of the history, which doesn't seem to make much sense chronologically, but literarily, in reading the book, you see that it works, that really the um, uh, chapter 17 through 21 is the, is the literary apex or high point. So he's been driving through the history, but then to make his full point, he returns to the beginning and points out the great wickedness of this people when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, we come to Deborah now. We're not going to spend very much time with Deborah, but I do want to make one point clear. 
In spending a little time, I do not mean to minimize the importance of this passage or its happening. I'm only minimizing its difficulty. Almost everything that we said about Exodus chapter 15 and the Song of the Sea uh, applies here. And formally, it is the same sort of thing. But just a, a word about context. We are, as I said, about a century and a half after the death of Moses after uh, the time of the general conquest of the land, we're in the midst of the time of judges, but there will yet be no temple for almost four more centuries. That gives you some idea of where we are. Still a long way to get to uh, the temple. We are in the midst of another oppression of the Israelites. You are no doubt well familiar with the judges cycle. One that it's, uh, people, groups, and individuals tend to go through, so it's a good one to know. God blesses the people in that great blessedness. They uh, lapse into what you might call carnal security. In the midst of their many temporal gifts, they forget the giver. And then you're on your way to religious and moral decline. In the midst of that decline, God judges them. This would be the bottom of this cycle. And in the midst of judgment, they remember the Lord and they cry out to him for deliverance. Now they're on their way back up. And then God delivers. And with his deliverance, he adds his blessing. And then it starts over again. Uh, this is what's happening uh, at the time of uh, Deborah. There has been a, a, a revival of Canaanite power in the region of what will later be known as Galilee up around the, the Sea of Galilee. So God, as he has so many times done already in the book, he, God calls his deliverer. And the question is, in Judges 4 and 5, who is the deliverer? And who is the judge, exactly? Most people would say it's Deborah. Well, maybe that's part right. If, if you define the judges as being those who were the military leaders working the deliverance, she's not the judge. Barak is. But inasmuch as he would not do his work without her, uh, she ends up having the greater glory in the whole engagement. But properly speaking, Deborah is what? She is a prophetess. Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. You can see this in your, on your map as well if you want to get a sense of where these things took place. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. This is part of the literary craft of the author of the book of Judges. The definite article is in the Hebrew. They came up to her for the judgment. What it seems is happening here, uh, and the author has played on words as far as her judging Israel, and they come up to her for the judgment. It appears to work something like this. They are suffering Canaanite oppression. They know that there is a prophetess in the land. And they come up to her and say, what should be done? What would God have us to do? Are there any promises upon which we can rely? 
during this season. So they come up to her for the judgment, not just judgment in general and ongoing. They come up for her to render a judgment concerning these matters and to speak to them on behalf of God. Verse 6. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali. So she's way down in Ephraim, just a little north of Benjamin. He's up on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, really right in the midst of the conflict. And said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? So Deborah is a prophetess. Barak is the military leader. Perhaps together they form something of a complete judge. For our purposes, in particular interests, we are told that God gives them a complete victory. However, Barak has been told that since he refused to go up on his own, trusting the word of the Lord, that the uh, glory of the victory would be given to a woman. At that point in the narrative, you expect that the glory of the victory is going to go to Deborah, but that's not quite so either. After Sisera's armies are routed by Barak, he flees away on foot, and he finds um, refuge in the tent of Jael, whom he takes to be an ally. It's very interesting. You have not just one mother in Israel, Deborah, but two. She calls to Sisera. Surah Elah, Saru Ilmi, come aside unto me. Come aside, my Lord. It almost sounds like a, the lisping or the comforting words of a, of a mother to her child. But she calls him aside. He asks for water. She says, I'll do better than that. I'll give you some warm milk and put you here under a covering. He goes to sleep. And she drives a tent peg through his head. Probably not through the temple, probably through the back of the mouth. His mouth appears to be wide open as he's dead asleep. And she uh, drives it through, uh, I think the Hebrew word rightly translated would be pallet, through the back of his mouth and pins him to the ground. So, uh, Barak eventually shows up and what can he say? The glory of the victory has indeed uh, gone to a woman, but not even Deborah, but to Jael. This precipitates a song, which is our principal interest um, in Judges chapter 5. First of all, we know that this is a worship song in praise of God for the great victory that he has wrought for Israel. Look at verses 2 and 3. Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. We can be sure that this is a worship song and very much like Exodus 15, it is a poetic retelling of the events. So in Exodus chapter 14, you get the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, you get a poetic retelling. It's the same thing here in Judges 4 and 5. First the event, 
and then a, po a poetic retelling praising God for the victory. But even doing a little bit more, if you, if you analyze her song very carefully, she extols the virtues of those who appear in the Lord's uh, battles and exposes the vice of those who refuse to appear. If I might just di digress. In our day and age, and I think that there's been a strong prejudice to it in every age of the Christian church, and perhaps, perhaps rightly so. Um, uh, men of peace and to, um, who refuse to become involved in uh, uh, controversy or even sometimes ecclesiastical warfare are always assumed to be the most, most virtuous. Judges chapter 5 is a great challenge to this notion. Those who appear to fight the Lord's battles are extolled. And a uh, curse is pronounced upon those who refuse to come up and fight on uh, behalf of the Lord. We should remember that we are an army. And we are called upon to fight in the Lord's battles and to appear when it is time. We should be peace-loving and people who are always uh, seeking peace. But there are times when there can't be peace. Um, the Lord, his crown rights are being attacked, and in which case the Lord's people need to appear. And of course, we don't fi fight uh, in, in battles of the church with sword and shield, but rather with uh, spirit, the spiritual weapons of the word. But we are supposed to appear and to... Uh, hazard ourselves in the high places of the field as, as Deborah says appeared to fight the Lord's battles um, I'd have you notice read the chapter later on even Reuben who is not sure what to do and hesitates with Reuben there are great searching of hearts is criticized by her it's not time for great searching of heart it's time to draw your sword and put, put on your buckler and, and appear in the Lord's battle. So even they are criticized for their indecision and for not knowing what to do. The Lord keeps the bridle quite tight in our mouths, doesn't he? Expecting us to know when it's time, uh, a time of peace and to sit quietly in our tents, but also expecting that we know when it's a time of war and to appear in the Lord's battles. Our... Uh, sermon series is primarily concerning the form here. And I want you to notice once again, this song is delivered by a prophetess. Look at Judges 5.1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying. Uh, to give you a little insight here. As, as we did with Moses. You remember how it said in Exodus 15 that Moses and all the children of Israel sang. But we said that the verb was uh, singular, placing Moses as the principal singer. There's a similar thing with Deborah. It says, quite literally in the Hebrew, it says, and she sang, that is Deborah, and then you get the explicit subject, and then you get what's, what's actually a very strong disjunctive uh, accent. And then Deborah sang, comma, and also Barak. 
So uh, definitely the emphasis is being put upon the prophetess herself and Barak joins with her. This also is seen within the context of the song in verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. So she's the prophetess. The song pertains principally to her. The uh, military engagement belongs principally to him, even though he joins her in the song. And finally, this brings us to questions of usage. How was this used the first time it was sung? We could say at least Deborah and Barak sung. So this might be something very close to a uh, prophetic solo, almost solo, because Barak certainly joins her in it. You could make an argument that at this time uh, the entire army joined her or Perhaps there was some other solemn gathering. In verse 2, praise ye the Lord is a call upon all the people to praise God. Um, Although uh, it might fail of a certain proof that that means that they're all to join in the song. They are all to return thanks and praise to the Lord. Are they all warranted to join in the song? I think we must simply uh, leave inconclusive. There's no mention of musical instruments here. Uh, And uh, there's no evidence that it was ongoing. This song is very much attached to the present circumstances. And as we have had occasion to observe time and time again, there was no vehicle for the ongoing use of this particular song. So I hope that you can see, uh, as we are drawing to a a conclusion in this era, If you look at your outline, the two principal points that we were endeavoring to demonstrate was that during this period of time, the songs for worship were delivered at the hand of a prophet or prophetess, the warrant coming by special revelation, and that the songs were occasional, whether that be the song of the sea or the song of the well. Or now, uh, Deborah's song, it appears that the songs were very much attached to their occasions. And inasmuch as there was no framework for their ongoing use in the tabernacle, it seems that they were used on the one occasion and then set aside. I'm very excited about next week's work, but it's too big to even uh, begin now. Uh, Next week, we will get into the time of Samuel and make our way to the time of David I cannot, uh, I could not overstate how important the next sermon or two is in the history of the service of song. I've, I've sometimes told people that if you, if you read a book on exclusive psalmody or anything else about the musical history of the Bible, and it doesn't include a very large section on the book of Chronicles, it's not worth anything. You can set it aside because it ignores the most principle matter. And if you want my own estimation as to why so few people have very much in the way of clarity when it comes to the service of song, it's because the book of Chronicles has been so largely neglected by almost everyone in the history of the church. But it is the single most important book on the subject, even probably surpassing the Psalter itself, because you can't place the Psalter or understand it 
apart from Chronicles. Chronicles had a very unhappy Greek title. Paralympomen. Basically, what it, uh, to illustrate this, uh, a paralympset text is, uh, in the ancient world, since vellum, the skin that they would write on was so precious, uh, since it was so precious, they would recycle it or reuse it. So after having written on it, if you didn't need that writing anymore, one of the things they would do is they'd scrape the vellum, they'd scrape the writing off, and then they would write on it again. We have ancient copies of the scriptures on this kind of vellum, but sometimes not the written text on the surface, but written underneath. That with microscopes, they're able to discern what was written underneath those texts of uh, scripture that at some point were scraped off. Seems to be a hard thing to do to the scriptures, but sometimes they were scraped off the vellum and the vellum was used for other things. That, that text behind the text, they call a paralympset. Uh, and this tells you a lot about the way that Chronicles is thought of. Basically, the idea is Kings is the real text. If you've read Kings, what need is there of Chronicles? Never treat Chronicles that way. It never treats Mark and Luke in that way. The author of Chronicles wrote for very different reasons. And when it comes to the service of song, the book of Kings will give you no help. Because frankly, the author of Kings is not interested in it in the slightest. The author of Chronicles is. And here's why. He writes, the Kings was written from the perspective of, we've been taken away into exile. How did we get here? And so the sins of the kings is always in the foreground. And Israel following her kings. How did we get into exile? Here's the history. This is how. Chronicles is written from the perspective of the restoration. We've gone back to Palestine. The temple is being built again. We need to resurrect its worship from the ashes. How do we do that so we don't end up in exile again? And so the same history is looked at. It's the same history, but for a very different reason. So what God instituted and ordained for the temple... Its construction, its worship, its service of song is of paramount importance to the chronicler. And so we will, um, Lord willing, make our way there uh, next Lord's Day. Let us pray together.